You have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12. We're going to look together at verses 9 through 21. I want to begin this morning a series of sermons that will carry us through the holiday season, both Thanksgiving and Christmas, focusing on, to some extent, family relationships, but in a broader sense, interpersonal relationships. I think this has the potential to be a very useful and even impactful series of sermons and responses and questions and conversation even after the first two services would seem to indicate that we're on the right track here. One of the trickiest aspects of the Christian life, this was true for me early on in learning to walk with Jesus and it continues to be the case for me now more than 20 years a follower of Christ. We, we are called upon to interact or, or to relate to the world around us in some very specific ways, but ways that can sometimes contrast with one another. Let me show you what I mean by that. On the one hand, we have the command in the Bible, several places, Old and New Testament, to be cautious about those we keep company with, with regards to the most intimate of relationships, the marriage relationship, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The Apostle Paul warns the church, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, or as we say in our culture, one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. There's a word of caution again and again that you take care about the people you give your time and attention to for the influence they stand to have in your life. On the other hand, we have been called to be the salt and the light of the world. In other words, our presence in the world is to have a preserving effect. It is to have the function of providing gospel direction to a lost and dying world around us. There's a point of balance to be struck with those two, right? On the one hand, withdrawing from the things of this world such that we walk worthy of our call, on the other hand, being actively engaged in the things of this world such that we can exert the influence God has given us by the gospel as salt and light. Now, during the holiday season, this gets all the more difficult because over the next several weeks, this week specifically with Thanksgiving and over the next five or six weeks with Christmas holidays and other, you're going to be involved in friend and family, mostly family activities. And although you have complete control over those who are assigned the category of friend in your life, you have no control whatsoever about those who have been assigned to that family category of your life. Some of you will go to Christmas gatherings that look a lot like a 1950s sitcom, and I'm envious of your family situation. It's leave it to beaver and everything else. And we really do at our house. We really talk about your get togethers and we talk about your parents and how fortunate you are to have the people that you have involved in your life and that kind of connectivity and fellowship and sweetness and concern. And, and listen, if you're, if you're here as a 20 something, 30 something with children and you have a functional family beyond your immediate family and they live in close proximity to you, don't you ever grumble or groan about them interfering or being a bother in any way. You have no idea how fortunate you are to have parents and grandparents to aid, to assist, and to encourage. But there are others of us whose Christmas get-togethers will look less like a 1950s sitcom and more like an episode of Cops. In both cases, in both cases, 
it is imperative that we carry with us as we go the light of the gospel. Now, I have never been one of these guys who was with this, you know, the quote, the St. Francis quote, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. That's always seemed foolish to me, right? You're never just going to kind someone into the kingdom. But I will agree wholeheartedly that we can carry ourselves in such a way that we can be so unloving and so unkind that we can create obstacles or impediments to people coming to faith in Jesus and entering into the kingdom. We can either lend credibility or invalidate the message of our mouth by the actions of our hands if we're not terribly careful. And this season of the year is an incredible opportunity for us to walk in the grace of the gospel toward those around us. This passage and those we'll consider over the next several weeks stand to help us tremendously in this regard. With those matters in view, I'd like to call your attention to Romans 12 verses 9 through 21. If you've found your way there in your copy of God's Word, I would invite you now to join me in standing out of respect and honor for its reading. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse number 9. Notice how straightforward, how simple, how practical Paul's exhortations are. Love must be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We're here in the book of Romans, specifically in Romans chapter number 12. Now, most in discussing the book of Romans would suggest that the real substance of Romans is chapters 1 through 11. If you've ever read the book of Romans before, you know that 1 through 11 is a deeply theological treatment of the message of the gospel. But I would argue that the real substance, the heart of the book of Romans is chapters 12 through 16. Now, I'm not one of those guys who would suggest that doctrine doesn't matter. In fact, doctrine with depth does matter. In fact, it's critically important. It is essential to who we are as followers of Jesus. The doctrines of the gospel establish the parameters for our faith. It provides the framework for all of our applications and practices of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But doctrine ought to go deeper than it's often allowed to go. In fact, I like to say doctrine should dance in your life. 
It should go much deeper than the level of information or, or, or packaging our brain, packing our brain with lots of good insights into the intricacies of the gospel. It should go so deep that it works itself out and that it impacts the way we think, the way we speak, the way we carry ourselves. Our personality should be shaped by the doctrines that we believe. What you believe about the gospel should lower your blood pressure in an anxiety-filled moment. What you believe about the gospel should shape the way you interact with a difficult family member. The, what, what you believe about the gospel should shape your perspective when the diagnosis is all wrong. What you believe about the gospel is incredibly important. It must be believed with depth, but so much deeper than is often intended. So deep that it infects every area of our life and shapes drastically the way we carry ourselves. These chapters, chapters 12 through 16, represent the real heart of the book of Romans, what Paul intends to get to, built upon that foundation established in chapters 1 through 11. Chapter 12 in this practical section of Romans begins this way. Brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. If you are looking for a way to worship Jesus, and we're to always worship Jesus, outside of the corporate church gathering, if you're looking for a way to worship Jesus outside this setting, one of the most critically important ways you can make much of Christ is by exhibiting gospel grace toward even the difficult people in your life. How you carry yourself, how you interact with those around you can be a critically important act of worship, a means of exhibiting the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ toward us and toward others. Look to verse number nine. Verses 9 through 12, by the way, there's a progression in our passage. Even in verses like these, where there's this list of commandments, it seems to sort of be in, in a rapid fashion, these commands given in order. There, there's, there's, there's intent and design about the progression here. Verses 9 through 12, focusing on how we interact with all people, just in general, whether they be friends or family or casual acquaintances. Listen to verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, or love must be without hypocrisy. That is to say, our love should be genuine. Lots of acts of love or grace or mercy or kindness are motivated by self-interest. What he or she on the other end of this act of love or mercy stands to repay me at some point in the future, or how I stand to be perceived because of this act of love or mercy. But that's not, not how we're to be motivated, right? Here the Bible says love must be without hypocrisy. It must be genuine. It must come from a place of selflessness. The remainder of verse 9 says, detest evil, cling to what is good. Now, these two are coupled together by design. Detest evil, cling to what is good, hate evil, love what is good. One of the things that complicates our ability to love others in our culture this is not so much the case in our little subset of the culture here, but in the broader Western culture, it has become increasingly difficult to be perceived as loving because of the confusion, the mix and mingling of, of what is good and what is evil. 
Isaiah warns, uh, he gives a word of woe to those who call what is good evil and what is evil good. And you may find that there are times when by virtue of your insistence on upholding a Christian value, you are perceived as a bad or unloving person. But I would contend that most of the time, as we detest what is evil and cling to what is good, if our deportment is right, if our tone is right, if our heart is right, there is an ability to do that in a way that, that is, in spite of the differences, endearing to the person who may be in opposition to our conclusion. It is possible that we be convictional when it comes to what the Bible says and kind to those who are at odds with what the Bible says simultaneously. The Bible seems to call us to this in this passage. Detest what is evil, cling to what is good. Notice that it does not say compromise with regards to what is evil in order to be perceived as loving or kind, compromise with regards to what is good in order to be perceived as loving or as kind. That's a danger as well. But not the danger I feel us as a congregation are inclined to dabble with. Our tendency far more often is to be so abrasive in our insistence as to what is good or evil that we completely cut ourselves off from opportunity to minister to those who would come from a different position or be of a different understanding. Both are dangers. And the one uncommon to us may be your danger. But the greater danger for us is to be so prickly or abrasive that we lose the platform for speaking into the experience of those who don't have a biblical worldview. Remember, the goal is not to be right. The goal is to win the hearts of men to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Detest what is evil, cling to what is good. Look at verse 10. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Show brotherly love. Love those around you like you love your brothers. Love them. Love them. Love them. I don't think we can ever do too good a job at loving those around us. And, and, and the metaphor of family, I think, is beautiful. It alleviates so many of the concerns and frustrations and so much of the hand-wringing. Love one another with brotherly love, with, with family affection. I, I, had, I had three siblings, three sisters growing up, so I didn't have siblings to punch on, but I was always convinced it could have helped me in school and otherwise if I'd have had an outlet for that in the home, Right? But some of you did, and you know some of the tensions that can exist between siblings. There can be frustrations, and there can be frustrations between family members in general. But at the end of the day, you are family. You may have a fistfight. Someone may bleed. But you would go to bat. You would die for the well-being of your brother, your sister, your relative, someone in your family. That's, that's what family affection, that's what kinship looks like. The ability to be in vastly different places on issues that are not of first importance, but, but ever willing, ever ready to stand in the gap, to die for the well-being of the one to the right or the left. Love one another. Family affection. Brotherly love. Pour yourself out for the well-being of those around you. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Seek to one-up your friend and neighbor by showing them more honor than what you have perhaps been shown. I'll just make a little practical recommendation here. Having observed uh, the wait staff in restaurants and those who are employed in stores and as shopping begins and we're out to eat and all those sorts of things, these places are crazy understaffed and the service is bad and the food's probably not what it used to be. And, and it was, it's a great opportunity for us to go and to give graciously, to seek to outdo one another in honoring those who are there in service to us when the reality is they're the ones who at least showed up. Half the workforce is not there. There's a real window of opportunity given this weird time that we're in to demonstrate grace and mercy and benevolence in Christ to those we interact with through this holiday season. Verse 11 says, don't lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit serve the Lord. Again, I think there's some intent in the progression of these commands. Don't lack diligence or don't be lazy, but be fervent in spirit. Be zealous in your efforts to show mercy and grace and love. Be zealous. Don't be slack. Be zealous. Serve the Lord. The idea here is we're looking beyond any earthly reward for our diligence and fervor in showing love to those around us. We're, we're persevering, not for what we might receive in the here and now, but for the award that awaits us, the reward that awaits us in Christ, for the well done of our Savior, Jesus. Ultimately, you're not interacting with wait staff or whoever's waiting on you in a shopping center setting. You're not interacting with difficult family members. You're not interacting with those family members that you love the most as unto them, but as unto the Lord. We do what we do, not as unto man, but as unto Christ, that much might be made of him. In your interactions, regard them as acts of service to Jesus, and it will radically transform the way, your perspective, your outlook on that brief or extended interaction. Verse 12 says, rejoice in hope. Again, looking beyond our experience here, rejoicing in what awaits us in Christ. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. These strung together, again, seemingly by design. The only way you're going to be patient in affliction is by rejoicing in the hope that awaits us in Christ. It's, it's difficult, or easy rather, when everything is going our way to show love, to be kind, when we're happy, when, we're in a good, when, when good things happen, we, we, just, we just tend to glow a bit and it's easy to be pleasant even when people are unpleasant to us. But what about when the affliction comes? What about when the difficulties arise? Our patience is short. Our nerves are exposed, and it takes very little, very little at times to set us off. Listen, I, I get it. Sometimes I, I think people think the preacher is just an entirely different human being. I'm, I'm not. I react to things the same way you react to things. I was in Memphis this week and was headed back to town and was sitting at a, at a stop stoplight, and there was a lady in front of me, and the lady just barely pulled out in traffic a little bit and then rethought that. And guy pulls up and gets out of the car and starts cussing, cussing at this lady. And for about that long, I thought about killing him. <laughs> it went away. I didn't do it. But for that long, I thought, I'll kill you. That was my thought. I'm sinful just like you. When the, when the variables are not ideal, that's when we behave poorly, right? When things don't go our way, that's when we're apt to do something stupid. 
That's when we're apt to act in a way that's natural to us. But what this passage insists on is that we act not naturally, but supernaturally under the influence of God's Holy Spirit that we treat others even as Christ has treated us. The only way you're going to be patient in affliction is by rejoicing in the hope that awaits us in Christ and being persistent in prayer. Haven't you experienced that when you spend time in prayerful fellowship with Jesus, you're easier to deal with that day? And haven't you experienced that when you've enjoyed prayerful fellowship with Jesus, that other people are easier to deal with on that day? These three are inseparably linked together. So this is how we are to interact with people in general. But again, there's a progression about our passage. Verses 13 through 15 appear to me to deal with how the gospel calls us to interact with hurting people specifically. People who are experiencing pain, people who have problems in their life. Verse 13 says, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. The idea of sharing with the saints in their needs suggests that there is a real material or financial need in their life. And the call of the passage is to share with them to meet their financial or material need as much as is possible. The idea of showing hospitality or pursuing hospitality is just about being a friend, loving them, providing a meal, inviting them into your home, being a friend to them. Notice that nowhere in our passage do the circumstances of their life, how it is that they were to arrive at this place of pain are ever mentioned. It's difficult sometimes to deal with hurting people because often for hurting people, they've made decisions that have contributed to their getting in that place of pain. Sometimes they have consistently made bad decisions that have put them in a dreadful place. And you can't get that nagging thought out of your mind as you seek to minister to what need may have arisen in their life. Sometimes hurting people like to be hurting people. I know some hurting people who are always looking for the next reason to be hurt so that they have substance for their conversation on the next day. It's all they think about and it's all that they talk about. But the circumstances under which the person hurts are never addressed in the passage. Because when it comes to showing love and grace and mercy, there are no exceptions or qualifications here in the scripture. We are called indiscriminately without prejudice, without thought, in fact, to minister to those needs as they arise. Notice that verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That would seem at first glance to be misplaced within the context of dealing with hurting people until you think for a moment and realize that hurting people are often inclined to hurt those around them. And the response is to lavish them with grace, to shower them with grace, to give them the benefit of the doubt if they weren't hurting in this way, if not experiencing the affliction, the pain they're now experiencing, their actions, their interactions with me and with others would be drastically different than they may be in the moment. It is a virtuous thing to give people the benefit of the doubt. That's a good and virtuous thing. 
It's a lost art for many today, but it is a good, positive, wholesome, healthy gospel thing to look for the best in those around us and to be surprised when the worst rears its ugly head. Help them financially or otherwise. Be a friend. Bless them even when they don't deserve it. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, which is just to say, show sympathy. Feel what they feel as much as is possible. Identify with their struggles and their joys. This is how we're to interact under the gospel with the hurting people around us. Verses 16 through 18 sort of takes the next step in this progression. Teaching us how the gospel calls us to interact with divisive people. Now, some of you are going to family gatherings. And, uh, and, and when we think here for a moment about divisive people, you can name them, right? Like you, you know, when he or she gets there, there's going to be trouble. When you hear the gravel begin to pop in grandma's driveway, you know that trouble is coming. And you're wondering already, you've had conversations with your spouse, with your family about how you're going to deal with that person this holiday season. You're just hoping for a COVID quarantine to alleviate the concern altogether. I know how you are. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Well, thankfully, the Bible helps us. Look at verse 16. Be in agreement with one another. I mentioned just a moment ago this idea of giving one another the benefit of the doubt. I, th I, think, I think that principle is pervasive in these closing verses. When it comes to divisive people, as much as is possible, be in agreement with one another. Now, we're speaking specifically to the church in this setting. It's relevant outside of a church setting. It speaks to all of our interactions with the world around us, but it's specific to the church here. Be in agreement with one another. You know, you know the trick to being in agreement with one another? Priorities. I can't think of a single situation where churches became disunified or experienced significant discord. And it was a non-negotiable primary gospel issue. Most of the time, when there's discord or disunity within the body, it's because someone or some group has elevated non-essential issues to a primary position. And anytime you take non-essential issues and elevate them to, to a place of priority, there will inevitably be discord and disunity in the body. The secret to mastering this business of being in agreement as a body, as the church, is to keep the main thing the main thing and to insist upon prioritizing the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. Be in agreement with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Which may on its own suggest that you find a corner of your family gathering with the humble. But you can't just outright neglect the proud in such a setting either, can you? Don't be wise in your own estimation. We're back to this idea of giving even the divisive person the benefit of the doubt. Here's what happens. That person, you know, before they get there is a problem. They've been pain in your neck for all of your life. And the same is true for everyone else in that meeting. So here's what happens. Sometimes every now and then they show up with good intentions, 
But your radar is so up and you are so keenly sensitive to the fact that they are a divisive person. You will read into a a well-intended statement or an exchange, something that was never meant to be there in the first place. And when you set it off with people like that, oh, it can be disastrous. Even when it comes to the divisive person, give them a wide berth and the benefit of the doubt. Look for the positive and focus there. Verse 17 says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Now, I could tell you story after story after story about dealing with divisive people. The problem is we're we're on a live stream service that's on the World Wide Web And it would probably create lots and lots of issues for me, right? I want you to know that by experience and in some ways on the principle and promise of God's word, even when it comes to divisive people, if if you will carry a gracious tone, if your words are seasoned with gospel grace, stern in your convictions, but in pursuit of peace with all men, Even when it comes to divisive people, those interactions you may navigate in a way that brings glory and honor and praise to Jesus. Now, an unfortunate experience that I've, a conclusion by experience that I've come to over the years is that sometimes those people that you may see from a distance at church and you think, oh, they're great, super people, loving people, kind people. I I wish we could spend more time together. Sometimes those people are despised within their families. And I just want to say to you, listen to me carefully here. I know there can be exceptions to this. I got it. Trust me, I got it. If everybody in your family has a problem with you, the problem is probably with you and not everyone else in your family. And it might be that one way you could serve the advancement of the kingdom within your family circle would be to show up with a new gospel attitude. And listen, I, listen, I get why this can happen. Like I, 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 could, I could mark off the years. I can tell you the number of times that I showed up at the family gathering and just mad. I'm mad before I get there because I know I'm going to smell like a big nasty cigarette by the time we leave there. And I'm going to have to listen to the foul mouths of some of them who gathered up there in front of my wife. And, and I'm going to want to drag somebody out by the ear and rough them up. I, listen, I get it. I got it. All that. I got it. Trust me. I got it. But that in no way serves the advancement of the kingdom's cause. And you're going to have to resolve on the front end of the family gathering or the friend gathering, whatever it looks like, that I'm going to walk in here and I'm going to look as much like Jesus as I can conceivably look on that day. It's not going to be a me. I don't have the power to do it. I'm going to call on the work of God's Holy Spirit to enable that in me. And I'm going to entrust the outcome of this day to him. But there has to be some resolve that we're going to carry the grace of the gospel with us as we go. As much as is possible, live at peace with all men. There's a fourth and final progression in our passage in verses 19 through 21. Here, we're instructed as to how the gospel calls us to interact with mean people. With people who don't want to be at peace with us. 
with people who are actively intending to do something harmful to us or those around us. Y'all ready for this? Verse 19. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. What do you, what do, you do when people are just mean? You turn the other cheek. You go the second mile. You leave room for the vengeance of God. I, I hope that in this obsession that our country seems to have with the 24-hour news cycle and the constant barrage of courtroom inside cameras, that that is generating in us, creating in us, in the absence of any real justice, a longing, a hunger, a thirst, a craving for a day. When at the return of Christ, the judge of all the earth brings justice in perfection. Brothers and sisters, I hope that there is growing in you a hunger, a thirst, a taste, a passion, a desire for a day when justice is rendered, where there is no media influence and no technicality, where justice is served in perfection. I look forward to that day. I long for that day. And that's precisely the day, the day the Apostle Paul points us to when it comes to dealing with people who are outright hostile or hurtful. Look at verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. The rest of that verse in the proverb is, and the Lord will reward you. Here, Paul seems to appeal to this natural want for retribution or retaliation. You'll be heaping fiery coals on his head if you do these acts of service to the one who's ugly or nasty or mean to you. But the core issue is that you serve those, even those who see themselves as enemies against you. You leave vengeance to the Lord and serve them. If he is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Notice the last verse, verse 21. I don't think we could overstate the extent to which this verse summarizes who we are as a gospel people and how it is the kingdom advances. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. In other words, if you give in to evil done against you, you have, by virtue of your retribution, been conquered by evil. You lose you lose, you lose. If on the other hand, you grant grace and mercy and forgiveness, not only do you win, but Jesus is greatly magnified. I hear sermons on forgiveness all the time, and we're, we're close to that topic and issue, and I, I have a real problem with the way I hear forgiveness treated in, in virtually every sermon that I listen to with regards to forgiveness. It's all about self-service. It's this utilitarian look at forgiveness. In other words, if you forgive, this is what it will do for you. We say cliche things and offer platitudes like bitterness or unforgiveness is like swallowing poison and expecting it to harm the other person. All of those are true, by the way. If you harbor hostility in your heart, if you are unforgiving in your heart, it will have a detrimental effect on you. You lose in the end. 
And it will fester there and it will do things to you. Bitterness and unforgiveness, those are among the most dangerous sins listed in all of the Bible for what it does to your mental health, for what it does to your physical health. It's not just that unforgiveness can destroy your eternity. Unforgiveness can destroy your life here on earth. But the number one reason we forgive is not because it serves our best interest. It's because it's morally right. Because Jesus forgave us. Because we're to forgive after the pattern of his forgiveness, even when it's undeserved. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Consider the example of Jesus. Jesus died in our place. He died as our substitute on the cross. He could have called upon 10,000 angels to exact justice in that moment. He could have come down and killed them all. But instead of exacting vengeance in that moment, Jesus hung between heaven and earth, looked out across a throng of Jews who moments prior cried, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in his humiliation hung there between heaven and earth as fit for neither. Jesus at his death was given the name which is above every name. That on the last day, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is King. And he's invited us to follow after that example, to model our lives after his life, taking up the cross and following him even unto death. This is how the kingdom is advanced. Never by power, never by politics, never by exerting our influence, always by the laying down of our life. The kingdom was inaugurated by the death of our king. And the kingdom is advanced as we die to ourselves and serve the needs of those around us. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is how the kingdom moves forward. Not the weapons of worldly warfare, but a life fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. The consistent confession of our mouth that he is Lord and King. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now, some of you were born with this swimming disposition. You're just nice people. On some level, just naturally, you're just nicer. I could name some, right? But then there's the rest of us. And I got news for you, even for the best of us, the standard that has been set in these verses is a far higher standard than you will ever meet in your naturally pleasant disposition. The only way that you or I can ever measure up to this standard is by the empowerment of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our heart. That present comes, that presence comes as a gift to us as we entrust our soul to Jesus. Calling upon the name of Christ, believing on the name of Christ, pleading for our forgiveness. That empowerment comes, the Spirit comes to abide in our heart. This is not something that you can do in your natural ability, but something that must unfold supernaturally in you. This is something God must do in you if you're to walk worthy of your call, whether it be the holiday season or just a Monday. The slightest of 
transgression, the slightest, the smallest of violations when it comes to this passage or any other for that matter, is deserving of eternal death. Our only hope is Jesus. Your only hope for interacting with your difficult family members is Jesus. Your only hope for getting through this day without completely fouling it up is Jesus. Your only hope for Black Friday survival is Jesus. And brothers and sisters, your only hope in eternity is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. We, we can laugh and make light. And, and I think sometimes you laugh to keep from crying. I do. And, and we, we can huddle up and we can talk about all sorts of issues that exist within our family. People we like to choke. People we love, look forward to seeing, all that. I got all that. But in reality, there, there's a lot of exposed nerve here. There's water under the bridge in some of your lives that is more painful than what I could even fathom. There are needs. There is a certain undoing in you that only Jesus can address by the touch of his hand and the power of his spirit. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. You need only come to him. You need only come to him. And whatever ails you, whatever affliction you have suffered, whatever wrong has been done you, whatever harm has come your way, whatever unforgivable thing has unfolded in your family past, Jesus has the power to heal. Come to him. Come, come, come. We're going to, on the other side of our time of invitation, enter into a time of, of remembrance. We're going to Partake of the bread and the cup, and we're going to do so in remembrance of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And, and for some of you, that's going to require of you that in this time of prayer and commitment, you write your heart with God. Because one of the qualifications, one, one of the things it means to come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner is that we've rid our hearts of unforgiveness. We've sought reconciliation with those who we've offended or who've offended us. And maybe you need to make that right in your heart this morning. That's, that's one of the things it means to come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Make it right, make it right, make it right, make it right. I don't know what's happened, but I, I know there are some very painful, damaging things. But I also know they're under the feet of my Savior Jesus. He can make it right. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the friends and the family that you've blessed us with. We pray that you would help us to be good stewards of those relationships, that we would make it known and make it clear that our commitment is to Jesus, that we would walk worthy before him, and that it's our heartfelt desire that all of those within our circle of influence, whether they be friends or family, would likewise know Jesus as of infinite worth, worthy of worship and praise, that those we love the most would love him the best. God, I pray that you would move among us in these next moments that your will would be done. We ask it in Jesus' name.